Hi, Jim here. Thanks for listening to this past episode of the Ski Podcast. Since releasing this podcast, we have a new supporter of the show. The Ski Podcast is now supported by Switzerland Tourism. They will be helping us explore some of the 355 ski destinations across the country, from famous names of Samaritz, Lax, Davos and Zermatt, to the lesser-known resorts that cover their mountainous land. We will be reporting on them and telling interesting stories about the people who live and work there. In total, there are 7,067 kilometres of slopes to ski and 1,800 lifts to ride and at least 80 of them are funiculars, which is good because I do love a good funicular. Well, there's a lot to do, so while we get on with that, you can get on with listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Thanks, listener, and thanks, Switzerland Tourism. Hey there, this is the Ski Podcast. We are sponsored by the Chill Factory, the North West Premier Ski and Snowboard Centre. If you like the podcast, then why not support our supporters by going for a slide in their cool box? To encourage you, they are offering all Ski Pod listeners a 10% discount. Just book your session online and use the code SKIPOD10 at the checkouts. I, Jim Duncombe, are live from La Caruza. Ian Martin, where are you? I'm in the UK in a, in a secret location waiting for it to start. in your in your in your lair <laughs> yeah. um if i want to say this in if there is a story or news items that people think that we should know about so if you've got an interesting story or interesting bit of news that would be good for us to cover do get in with the show get in touch with the show you can get in with the show if you like uh, email jim at the ski pod.com or ian at the ski pod.com or you can tweet oh is it the ski podcast.com oh my word i'm terrible at this <laughs> that's why yeah, no one ever checks them um uh, you can tweet us at the ski podcast find us on facebook you can tweet ian at skipedia if you like um he definitely um will pick that one up or you can find me on instagram at the average skier in today's show we will talk about my new home avalanche rescues wolves ski sunday skiing after pregnancy testing a new boot dryer there'll be some farming some cheese team gb and some disability skiing as well Right, let's get on with the show. Ian, when we last spoke, you were in La Rosier, heading to Val d'Isère. How was Val? Val d'Isère was great, actually. Um, I... I guess it was a good place to test out those 40 grand skis I bought you. <laughs> yeah, there was plenty of snow and no chance of, of getting it uh, you know, hit on rocks. Conditions were, were excellent. My main issue in Val d'Isère was getting away from the place. Because it, um, I was coming back at the time when the drones were terrorising Gatwick Airport, and uh, that was mainly on the third. Or not? But there were lots of yeah, or not, or maybe they didn't exist at all. But I was coming back on the Friday, uh, and base. The short story is I had two flights cancelled, but I managed to get on a flight leaving at half past ten and took me to a different airport but i i got back home uh, in the end at half past one in the morning so you know i was very grateful to back in the end although i have to say that swiss air claimed that their flight was cancelled due to high winds uh, which i think is a load of rubbish so they they turned down they turned down my claim for a uh, eu compensation <laughs> which uh, i guess they're probably just saying you know forget it you're not going to get it after brexit anyway so you can't have it now are you the sort of person that would tweet disgruntledly from the airport about yeah, your I experience? I, I definitely tweeted about Swiss and my dissatisfaction with that. You know, I don't know how you check this stuff, but either way, 
Um, did it do? Did it do any good? Yes. No, it didn't. But I got back, and you know, when I was sitting in, in I was in Geneva departures for five and a half hours, which is one of the most expensive places in the world to hang out. But while I was there at ten o'clock, just before I did board my flight, there was a family of five who literally just found out that their flight home to Stansted with EasyJet had been cancelled. They 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 were then preparing themselves to actually leave departures, go back round to check in, join the scrum of people trying to find out what's going on, recover their luggage, find somewhere to stay the night, and try and work out how to get back the next day on the twenty second of December in time for Christmas. So. You know, I was very happy to get back. Yeah, sounds like you had a successful experience there. Yeah. So, obviously, I was out in the Alps, but since then we've crossed over, and you're now living in uh, La Clusa. Uh, how is that going? And how's the snow? And have you been out on it much? Well, um, it was it was a better <laughs> journey than it sounds like your journey home. Obviously, it was a sixteen hour drive with a cat and two guinea pigs, um, and two children as well. And um, we have um, a pair of Kindle fires um, for the children to use on specifically on long journeys. It's the only time we let them use them. So they love it. And somehow I managed to drop them in our driveway. <laughs> at six, and uh, we discovered this uh, about an hour into the journey. And we thought it was going to be terrible, but it wasn't. It worked out fine. Um, Christmas was quite hectic. We had guests staying. So we arrived the day before Christmas, picked some people up. So that was all quite hectic. Um, we've had guests in this big chalet that uh, my fr- my wife is running, essentially. We've got children into school. The sad news is the cat really hates it here. He doesn't like to go outside. Right. Um, uh, in terms of skiing, have been quite a bit, but mainly with Hadley and Connie. Hadley is getting um, very good for a four-year-old. He had his first taste of powder yesterday, and he really loved it. Um he is keen to go skiing at every opportunity. Connie kind of less so. She wants to take it a bit slower. But um, before that, the snow, as it has been quite in the French, kind of this end of the Alps, was quite icy and hard packed where they've been making it. Um, but as of yesterday, we had about, I don't know, 15 centimetres. So it's Great. pretty Excellent. exciting. Um, I'm delighted to hear it. Look forward to hearing how you discover the whole of that. Uh, um, is it called the Aravis area? What's that? Yeah, it's the Aravis area. So, yeah, there's Le Clouseau, which has uh, five individual massifs that make up the ski area. And then um, a five-minute ride, um, and a lot nicer um, in peak times, uh, is a place called Le Grand Bonard, which um, has about 90 kilometres of piste, and I'm looking forward to experiencing that. We've been up on the children's slope with that. And then I live in between a place called Saint-Jean-de-Sist, Sixth yeah. and the Clouser. Um and Shan John Sis is like the the pivot point where you can go to either ski area and they have um a, a single tow rope as well which is covered on my leap path lift pass which I'm very excited. Oh that's yeah. useful. Yeah. And also I seem to remember there's a very pretty little village called Manigod in that area as well. Yeah, Manigod so, is the yeah, right hand side of the ski area. Um we've been up there quite a bit because that's where the snow has been the best so far. But I was thinking I will do it because all the runs haven't been open and I haven't explored it as much as I'd like to have done. Um, I will do a full report on a guide to skiing in the next episode, if that sounds good to you, Ian. Yep, sounds good. And today the children are in school for their second full day. And once I finish this podcast and done a bit of work, I'm going to go for my first ski properly. Excellent. So that is exciting. I'm really pleased to be here. 
Right, Ian, we've talked a lot about avalanches on this podcast. We've read the book Wall of White. You're probably going to tell me that's the wrong name for the book now, um, which was a survival story about, or some people survived a huge avalanche. Um, but there's been a recent survival story from Le Plan. Is that right, Ian? What are the details of that? Yeah, well, it was a while ago now, but I think it's worth mentioning because, you know, it was variously described in different papers, etc., as a miracle. But uh, on Boxing Day, I think it was, there was an avalanche. Uh, so, very, you know, pretty shortly after I was out there in La Plan, a bunch of people were skiing. Uh, and a child, uh, well, uh, I think it was 12, was found after 53 minutes uh, under 70 centimetres of snow, which is pretty deep. Now, I had a look back at A Wall of White, the book that we covered in our ski book group back in uh, episode 25. And I've got it in front of me now. It says here uh, that uh, although, you know, it helps if you get an air pocket and you could survive theoretically 90 to 120 minutes, uh, you know, under the snow. Normally, after 35 minutes, your uh, chance of being found alive are 30% and then it goes down massively. So it really was a, a miracle. And there was, um, you know, great work by the uh, the local uh, rescue authorities to, to you know, find this, uh, this child, who I think was French, but with a British passport. So that's probably why it got a lot more coverage in, in the UK. And, and just celebrate how bloody brilliant these people are. Yeah, it is incredible. And this came across the piste, is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was coming down. It was a, it was a, it was. I think it's an itinerary okay. run where they were. Uh, where so there's always a risk, isn't there? It makes me think maybe I should get an avalanche refresher course. Well, you know, if you if you're going out, if you're going out with um, you know beeps, not that's one thing, but you do definitely need to use them. I went out to uh, Alanya um, when I went heli skiing last winter, and on day one. W- we did uh, a kind of revision to make sure that you, you know, understood how they work. And we had to find, you know, different uh, transceivers hidden under the snow. And, it, you know, I, I had done that before, but it was really good to do it again. And the fact is that you know, the, the point isn't just to save you, it's to help find other people as well. So if you feel that you need a reminder of how to use it, then, yeah, it's worth doing. Yeah, I think I will find someone to... Uh reminds me and obviously give my wife um uh, a good thing Hardy seems to like digging in the snow so he'd probably enjoy that as well right excellent <laughs> yeah you could get you know get them to hide your your one transceiver um and then you know as a game i don't know you and the other uh go and try and find it i'm, I'm guessing i'd probably have to sellotape some haribo to it to get them to get them really <laughs> interested in that game yeah well that's you know sniffer dogs almost work like that as well don't they now, the other thing we were going to talk about Ian, here is um, over in Val Torrens, um, there's a lift that is under threat. And we don't often hear that this, that there's a lift under threat, but people are quite concerned about this. Tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I spotted this on, on Twitter the other day. Uh, it's a petition that's been started on, on Change.org. I think anyone can start a petition uh, on there. And basically, they're trying to say to the uh, company that uh, runs the Three Valleys, that they want to stop them taking out a uh, chairlift that's on the Peckley Glacier in, in Val Torrens. It doesn't seem like they're planning to uh, replace it, from you know, my understanding. They just want to take it out uh, and 
their argument for retaining it is that it gives you you know access to you know not only amazing views but a lot of uh, ski touring uh, access and off-piste access i'm not entirely sure why they want to remove it something to do with uh you know the fact that it's uh, it's aged and uh, and out of date but you know these days you normally see lifts replaced with like a you know a six-man detachable chair rather than taken out this is a, a like an old two-person chair i really like the passion um that that has come out of this um like the like the argument you said um one was no to transform the transformation of the valteren ski area into an amusement park stripped yeah, of technical yeah. piece and ski lifts reserved for intermediate to expert skiers um and they say yeah. no to reducing safety of the ski area by mixing all levels of skiers on the same slope yeah, I, think... I mean you know there is a link with that previous thing that we talked about where in la plan you know these guys were in an avalanche because they were on uh, you know a a part of the mountain which is um you know accessible but evidently dangerous and you know i think that argument there is what they're uh, addressing you know people want to be able to choose to uh, their own level of risk yeah i mean for me also it made me feel like as as tourists which we often are now um, it's kind of easy for us to forget that people actually live in these resorts and are passionate about these resorts um, and they 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 want to go out and use them the way they are like it says they don't want it to turn into a Disneyland amusement park ski resort where everything's really safe they want they're there for the thrill of it and they've chosen to live there and they've kind of got the passion that you often read about American ski fields when they're trying to save them or um, that sort of feel it just brings home how passionate people are about living there and they've chosen to live there as opposed to it isn't just a theme park for us holidaymakers to go and um, to go and play in all the time yeah i mean you're absolutely uh, right there although you know it does feel with all the diversification that's going on in ski resorts that um, they are becoming more like an amusement park and they are deliberately doing that and i'm not you know i'm not saying that's a a bad thing at all and just to take Valterrenza as an example you probably, you must have seen and listeners probably know about the new um dual line uh zip wire that they've uh mm-hmm. so they always had a zip wire you know high up but they've installed another one which uh, you can fly in race your friends go up to 65 uh, kilometers an hour above the town and land in the town now you know maybe that is the sort of thing you'd find in an amusement park to me, it sounds it sounds good fun. It doesn't interfere with my skiing, but but it is a deliberate part of positioning. Uh, and a lot of the ski resorts, the big French ski resorts, are owned by uh, Compagnie des Alpes, who own amusement parks, and that's part of where you know this this fear is is driven from. Well, before you know it, there'll be a magic carpet and a fully deuce in Le Grave. <laughs> oh Imagine gosh. that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, talking of lifts, um, I got a message on Instagram from um, the guys that run the ski school championships um, every year oh, up yeah. on the Leicester's Alp Glacier. And they run it at the start of the season, and it's a, a big event that's been growing and growing and growing. And and they wanted us to find out, because I don't know much about Leicester's Alp at the moment, uh, and they are saying there's a bit of dissatisfaction in Leicester's Alp over the decision to shorten the chair that connects up to the glacier and use the new Tourer lift instead, meaning that now only the Jandry bubble connects to the top half of the glacier. Um, create is huge congestion likely this is what they want to know huge congestion is likely at during busy times and they'd be interested to know if any other podcast listeners like them 
are interested in the grumbles um, and if they can say how much that affected them over the peak time. Um, if you do know, get in touch with the show um, in the usual ways. Ian, are you a big Ladies Al fan, or can you yeah, not no, answer I this know, question? Uh, uh, um, I can't specifically answer that uh, uh, question, but what I find really interesting again is it links into you know our, our previous point about the lift in in Valterend. You know, there is a core group of people who you know very focused on you know what we maybe from the holiday maker side of things. You know, every year there's this new lift and that new lift and this change. But sometimes, you know, what's what's taken away isn't always, um, you know, to the to the benefit of everyone. Back in episode twenty four, yes. Ian, you you sang the school <laughs> Sunday theme tune. Would you would you would you like to no, reprise that? Or once are you happy for um, any lifetime uh, and and any one podcast? I'm I'm sort of surprised you haven't got requests to um, play gigs, student unions, and stuff back on the back yeah, of that. Surprising, isn't it? <laughs> um, so Ski yeah. Sunday is back. It was back at the weekend. Yeah, have I watched have watched it. it. I, I, I don't know whether you'd be able to watch it. Have you found some way to uh, mask your IP address or anything like that? Well, um, I went through a company called um, UK Telecom, right. I think it's called. And I, I know this is terrible because I should be doing more things in the French national. But basically, for a really small extra amount of money, they've sorted all my Wi-Fi and stuff out. And from that, I actually get... Um, because I've got two internet connections, um, I get two free um, 150 megabytes of um, IP address, so I can watch iPad. Right. Okay, well, I don't know if you want to use it all up on Ski Sunday. Can Can I get the TV license people out here? Will they, uh, will they track me down? Yeah. A, a white van's going to pull up yeah. with a satellite dish on yeah, the back. I, don't think on that, the top I think that's and, the whole uh, problem with the iPlayer. Uh, but Ski Sunday is back. They had the first episode last Sunday. Uh, in the uh, world of catch-up viewing, I didn't actually watch it until Monday evening, and you know it's always good to to have it on the uh, you know, to have it. it gets everyone excited about uh, skiing, and had a really good feature on Dave Riding, who we've mentioned. You know, as is the case a bit like with our podcast. You know, there's always a time lag between production and when it, it comes out. They just covered uh, when he was in Zagreb. Which is far, you know. I think he came seventh in that race. Uh, now, obviously, uh, since then, I mean, we might as well mention the fact that he's since scored two podiums, and he's uh, secured his position as uh, Great Britain's most successful ever alpine skier, um, which is which is tremendous. You know, it's absolutely fantastic. But they didn't quite capture that. <coughs> I'm sure it will get featured in the next episode of Ski Sunday. However, I noticed that that uh, is scheduled to be from St. Anton. And I saw a tweet this morning because obviously St. Anton and Austria are having huge amounts of snow at the moment. I guess what? They've cancelled the women's downhill. So Graham Bell and Ed Lee mentioned, you know, hanging out at the Crazy Kangaroo. Well, um, they can hang around in the crazy kangaroo, but they're not going to be able to see the Ladies World Cup in St. Anton, uh, which is a shame because, you know, again, it wouldn't happen anyway. But um, Brian Bell mentioned that what they were really hoping for is in St. Anton, uh, Lindsay Vaughn would, would beat Ingemar Stenmark's record for the for most ever World Cup wins. As it is, she's had an injury and she wouldn't have done it in St. Anton anyway. So, 
it's there. <laughs> it's definitely worth watching. Uh, and I don't know what they'll do instead of uh, um, you know, the St. Anton feature. And um, hopefully... Maybe they'll just, just do a pub crawl. They'll do an old school crystal bar crawl. Um, Graham can be the rep. Uh, and... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that could work. Or maybe they'll just have... You know, I'm sure they've got a stack of hopefully a stack of freestyle features because um, you know those are the bits that I kind of probably enjoy the best. Jenny Jones uh, did a, a feature on the uh, Audi Nines event they had in Solden, and you know that. Was so what you're saying this could be the best episode yet? Well, who knows? Who knows exactly? But it's back, so watch it Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or, or whenever. Um, it's there. Um, I've also been enjoying um, Ed Lee slowly becoming the Martin Lewis of um, skiing. Have you been watch- Have you noticed that? Well, funnily enough, I actually only came across this um, this morning. It's like how to go on ski holiday without spending too much money. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's it. He's um, he's got his on his Facebook page. He's doing it, and the last one was about you know maybe avoiding the bigger resorts and looking for smaller places where you know the skiing is slightly smaller. But you know you're saving a hundred euros on a lift pass over a week, which you know is a big saving for a family of four. Um, his hashtag is Edley's Money Saving Snow Tips, which I'm not sure is that catchy, but um, I think it's a good series. I quite like it. I'm, I don't quite know why Ed Lee's doing it, but I suppose he's a, a big face in the ski world, so I'm going to keep watching it. Yeah, I see a problem with that hashtag, because Lee is quite difficult to spell, isn't it? Ed Lee. Yeah. yeah. I did see, actually, I was very looking... pleased to see on Ski Sunday, at the end of it, they do like a ski social, they call it, where you can hashtag in questions to them. And uh, Ed asked Graham, you know, where are places which offer better value uh, for skiing. So probably the question should have been the other way around. But anyway, I was delighted to see that um, uh, Graham Bell mentioned uh, La Mangie in Grand Tourmalet, where I, I went last year. And I can't remember what episode uh, whoops, I covered that in. Uh, but, you know, yeah, you know, 1,800 metres high, you know, great skiing. Um, and, you know, it's really good that, Places. I mean, he also mentioned, to be fair, Bakira Barret in the Spanish Pyrenees and, uh, and Norway as well. But um, yeah, I thought that was really good. Maybe next time it will be uh, Ed Lee mentioning it. Hey, let's do our own, Ian. Next week, we'll both come back with the best value for money ski resort and see who's got the best one. Okay. I'll write yeah, that down. I've made a note. Good stuff. Um, while we're talking about Ski Sunday presenters, yeah. you've been talking to someone who's appeared on a few of them. Uh, she was on a podcast a few weeks ago. Who was that? Uh, Chemi Alcott. We, I chatted to her at the ski show, and I actually recorded this uh, this piece uh, then, which is about skiing after pregnancy. I mean, she's already had one child, a uh, boy called Lockie, and she is imminently due for her second. Uh, you know, it could be any day now, so... Um, you know, thinking of you, Chemi, and uh, for anyone uh, listening to our <laughs> show who is um, thinking about what it's going to be like skiing after pregnancy, this might be interesting to listen to. So, congratulations, you are seven months pregnant at yeah. the moment, and that means that you will be going skiing on, on that heli ski trip we mentioned a, a bit earlier, pretty shortly after uh, you've given birth. And obviously, you know, a lot of female athletes, Serena Williams we've seen recently, uh, Jess Ennis, you know, have competed at a really high level. Well, how, how do you feel about skiing pretty soon after childbirth? 
I mean, skiing is my love. It's my passion. Um, I'm training now knowing that I'm doing the trip six weeks after birth. So right. I'm doing loads of Pilates, loads of stuff. Um, exercises that I know will knit my core back together really quick yeah. I was very lucky the first time around I skied 10 days after giving birth I didn't ski very well um, but um, my body having overcome quite a lot of injuries I've got very good body awareness so yeah. I know that I can do this trip I can push myself and there's a lot of preparation that goes into it now yeah. for the kind of afterbirth and thinking about how I'm going to react yeah. when the because um, you um, competed in the Olympic pretty soon after breaking your leg uh, before, mm. didn't you? What was the gap from Yeah, from so that one? five and a half months after surgery, I'd only skied four minutes before yeah. I got to start getting my last yeah. Olympics. So going surgery. heli skiing, uh, you know, yeah. a couple of months after having yeah. a, a child is going to be nothing. Again, I, I'm hoping that promotes to women that it's not as gnarly. I, I, I want them to think it's accessible to them. Yeah. If I'm doing it that recently after birth, yeah. then that means that you know 50%, 60% of women are in a shape where they can do it. I yeah. think that that hopefully shows, oh, maybe you know it's not as extreme. It can be fun and it can be for me. Great. I think I waited at least um, one year after giving birth in before I went skiing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's 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 great work uh, by you. Well done. Oh, sorry, I didn't give birth. My wife gave birth. I still waited a year. I thought that was yeah. kind of thing. Um, uh, all good tips, though. Do Pilates and be ready for skiing after giving birth. Yeah. I did Google it, Ian, to find out a bit more about um, skiing after giving birth. Um, and it, this is quite interesting. So I started Googling and it went, how soon after giving birth? And it started filling it in. Um, how soon after giving birth can I have sex, drive, get pregnant? And as I started typing skiing in, it got closer to swim, shave, and then shower. Uh, and then when I finally typed in the whole how soon after giving birth can I ski sentence, um, yeah. no one else clearly had ever Googled it. And it took me to Snowheads, the hub of feminine knowledge that it is. Uh, and the general agreement is that you can go skiing after pregnancy when you're ready. Um, one user, Susie Snowflake, said it was three weeks and generally agreed with what Shemi had been saying in that interview. In-depth research, I know. Let's talk about aeroplanes. We love talking about aeroplanes and transport. I think it's like our second favourite thing, don't um, you? After, after skiing, it's talking about okay. transport. Well, I know what this one is. This only cropped up this week, didn't it? Well, I think I know. Go on, tell me. Now, I, ha I haven't really prepared for it. Um, I thought it would be quite interesting, Ian. If we both open the email, I'm just opening it now. There's a sound effect. Um, and just kind of read it a bit together because it's so ridiculous well i i have think? written down some of the things for the matter i mean we talked about this before um valet privé is what we talked about right yeah okay yep. so valet privé is uh, is and these are the people who brought us or didn't bring us powered air they're the is that people right? who didn't bring us powered air exactly uh, which is uh, or was going to be a charter airline between the UK and Sion in uh, France, which uh, in Switzerland. And if you're interested in finding out a bit more about Powered Air, and it's worth noting that it's covered in probably most all of our first nine podcasts. We were that obsessed. Right. With okay. But and so uh, Valet Privé is a um, a private membership airline. I mean, I don't really understand it. Um, a private membership airline it doesn't really make it very clear but you're going to be able to fly over there and it's not a charter airline um you know 
and they at the end, at the bottom they got a picture of quite a nice smallish looking plane. But I cannot believe I cannot believe the numbers that they're talking about here. So to be able to do it, right? This is how I understand it. You pay a membership fee of a thousand pounds per annum. Yep. Yeah. Then you pay an they need three hundred and twenty. An additional monthly management fee of a hundred pounds per month. So that's two thousand two hundred per year to be a member. Yeah. Then after that, you have to buy a minimum of thirty-six tickets, which costs nine thousand pounds. So that's eleven thousand two hundred in total. Now those thirty-six tickets are each way, so that's eighteen, um, you know, returns, and you've got to use them within a year. So basically, that means traveling, I don't know, from now on, at least every week for the rest of the season. And as far as I can see, they haven't started flying. And are you allowed to share the book flights? Can you take other people with you? Yeah, you can take your just... family. You can take your family, of course, yeah. Uh, and other people. You just need one member. But it makes it £622 per return flight. Now, I can't... I just can't see the advantage. This is my favourite thing. All seats subject to availability. Uh, no. <laughs> um, if I'm paying this much money, I expect a seat to be available. That's surely the point. Yeah. Uh, it's just um, bizarre, and I also noticed within the email, which I found um, really weird, is that um, it says, um, "Blah blah 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 blah." We are due to start flying in December 2018 if sufficient interest is available. Which they haven't. Yeah, they. So, I don't know. Allegedly, according to their thing, 138 people have signed up already. So you know. You only need uh, you know, a bit less than, uh, what is that, 184 more people, and it'll all happen. People always inflate numbers. That's probably not true. Yeah, exactly. So it let's, seems not, give them, so let's not give them too much time. It's a bizarre thing. I can't believe it exists. It probably doesn't exist. What have we got next? <laughs> what have we got next? Um, wolves, Ian. Wolves. Ah, wolves. Yes. Okay. I Now, did you see this program on the BBC? Uh, over Christmas time, um, about it was like a dramatization of uh, a wolf uh, out in the wild that started off in the Dolomites. Did you did you see it? Uh, is it like White Fang? Uh, possibly. Is that the book by Jack London? Oh, I don't know. I've just watched the film. Wasn't Kevin Costner in it? Uh, I that's dances with. White Fang. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm mixing up all Okay, so brilliant documentary. Obviously, dramatized. You know, you think this has been edited well, but they had a tracker on this wolf and it started in the in the uh, Dolomite. And what I found amazing about it, so she she becomes uh, pregnant. While she's pregnant, she's not thinking about when she's going to ski next. She travels 1,200 kilometers from the Italian Dolomite into Austria through the Tyrol into France and settles uh, herself to have her cubs in the um, Mont Blanc region of Chamonix, which firstly, I just thought, wow, that's amazing. When people talk about seeing, you know, wolves in the Alps, they could have come from a thousand kilometers away. And that's where uh, her cubs were born. And it was a, just a brilliant um, yeah, nature program, which I, uh, I love those. But we, we mentioned before in episode seven that, um, you know, wolves have been seen in the Alps. I think that was in Meribel. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I also talked to uh, Julien, the the uh, instructor, who I'm going to, we've uh, got a feature on him a little bit later on, I met in La Rosière. He talked about how wolves are increasingly becoming uh, an issue for farmers um, 
particularly sheep farmers, uh, out in the Alps, and their numbers are growing. Uh, have you seen any yet in La Clusa? Um, I have been looking out. I've not seen any footprints. Um, I did see a group of people skiing dressed up as um, elephants and um, penguins the other day. Is that the same? <laughs> no, is there is there a documentary about that? No, I'm not 100 percent sure that it that it is, but wolves are definitely on the agenda because around the same time as that program. I saw an article in uh, Le Dauphiné, which you, you're probably reading on a regular basis because that's the kind of uh, Haute Savoie, Savoie uh, newspaper. And it was talking about lots of facts about the number of wolves in France. And it says that they've gone up uh, from 282 in 2014-15 to 430 in 2017-18. So that's, that's a big increase in almost all of those Alps in France. Uh, sorry, all those wolves in uh, France are in the Alps. Although, having watched this programme, you know, they could, could be anywhere, but 400, 430, and they had a little, they said that 51 were killed in 2018, presumably. Well, uh, they were legally shot, uh, eliminated, uh, I guess, by, by farmers or whatever. So. So, yeah, if you take that into account, their numbers are clearly increasing uh, significantly. And they had a little uh, kind of survey in there or uh, some stats in there that says that um, 76% of what they are kind of wild animals, but 16% are domestic animals. So, uh, you know, sheep, uh, goats, etc. Possibly your cat cat could be at risk. This is why the cat won't go outside, Ian. You can tell exactly. So you know, it, it, yeah, it's fantastic. A wolf it, it, I find it fascinating. I think you know, intuitively, I think, oh, it's brilliant. They're wild animals. You know, there should be more of them uh, around. It's great. But if you're a, well, apparently, you know, they they obviously kill other animals, and sometimes they kill the uh, the wrong ones. And there was a, another photo in the Dauphiné back in October of a pack uh, of thirteen wolves. Um, that have been uh, taken by a kind of night uh, camera, and so yeah, when when they group together like that, which is what they naturally, you know, that would worry me a little bit <laughs> if I came across them at night. A pack of wolves, yeah, that would be worrying. I will keep my ear out, and maybe Ian, for you, I will sacrifice one of my children's guinea pigs um, to lure to lure a wolf in. <laughs> Okay. And, um, it could be like that bit in Jurassic Park where you tie it to a stake. Yeah, that's definitely what I'm going to do. And then it'll disappear, and then it'll be hunting me. Um, and I'm going to sell yeah, the story to the Daily Mail. Don't go to the Alps. Wolf eating guinea pigs. Right. British that's man, idiots. Yeah, it would. Oh, um, first yeah. of all, okay, Ian, we'll get an exclusive. Don't you worry. Oh, Ian, it's time for some reviews. Are you ready? I am ready, yeah. Uh, would you like to start or shall I start? Okay, I'm going to start with Ian Webb because I really like this one, uh, which was on iTunes. So uh, don't forget you can review us on iTunes and it helps other people find us. He's given us five stars and he says, fantastic. All 27 podcasts done in two weeks. That's 14 Ooh, dedication. Days, so he must have listened to around two a day. Uh, Ian says, and it's not me, uh, uh, under an alias, I learned of your podcast a couple of weeks ago and I've played them from the pilot to podcast 27 earlier today. It's been brilliant. 
I just can't wait now to get uh, uh, to our chalet, La Moussière Morgin Port du Soleil, where the now famous Dave Burrows is from. Keep it up, guys. Can you do one every other day in the season? No. <laughs> no. No, we can't, but we'll do our best to keep it up, and I'm glad Dave Burrows is now famous. I did ask Dave um, if he knew him. I thought he might have put him up to that, and yeah. he said no. Right. Um, he's never heard of Ian Webb, and... Um, he is on the lookout for a man looking suspiciously at him. He said he was in the coffee shop the other day and it was like he was a celebrity. Someone was looking at him a bit weirdly. Yeah. Thought it might be Dave. Ian Webb. Ian Webb, if you see Dave Burrows, do you make yourself known? He's a bit scared. Okay. <laughs> um, here's one from Facebook um, from Michael Burry. Uh, discovered this podcast from the Snowhead Forum. What a gem. I'm assuming that's us, not the Snowhead Forum, but it is a gem. Um, Jim and Ian bounce off each other in a relaxed, natural manner, which is entertaining, knowledgeable, informative, and most of all gives us the desire to get back to the hills as often as possible. Lottery win, and we are there for sure. Well, I hope you win the lottery, Michael Burry, and you could sponsor the podcast if you did. That'd be nice <laughs> with that lottery money. Yeah, a bit of philanthropy in the in the world of ski podcasting would be would be perfect. But that's that's very kind of you, uh, Michael, and I'm glad to hear that uh, you know we've got people coming in from the Snowheads Forum as well. I've got one more, which um, I think I received through Facebook as well. It's from a chap called Michael Gaff, and he said I really enjoyed listening to the pod. Keep up the good work. So thank you to Michael. And to Michael, and to uh, and to Ian, and uh, you know, please do leave us uh, your reviews and any way you want to. But iTunes is always a good one. Michael Gaff, Michael Gaff did include his phone number. Do, do you think he wants us to read it out? I think it was in his signature or something like that. But no, let's not read out. His <laughs> oh phone right. Number. All right then, um, Michael Gaff. If you do want us to read out your phone number, let us know. So let's do it. We haven't done a product review for a while, Ian, yeah. and um, we're going to do one now. Okay. This is, it's, I've written boot warm, but it's not. It's a boot dryer um, from a company called Dryshore. So did you know, Ian, that your feet sweat around 200 millilitres during a day on the slopes? I didn't. Is that, is, about, is that about average? Is that just my feet or the average? Um, I don't. I don't know about your feet. I haven't tested them. That's the average. That's what the the man who fitted my boots told me. Um, and to keep your inners inners in your inner boots um, from you know wearing out and keeping them fresh, um, you need to keep them dry. So you should be drying your boots regularly, taking them out. Um, so you can do that on boot warmers, or you could take them out and leave them next to the radiator. But this Dryshore product that um, we got sent in the post is a kind of an eco-friendly way of doing that. Now. I'm really struggling to describe describe it, um, but essentially it looks like um, a bony banana with a bean bag inside it. Can you picture that? So, um, I mean, that's the politest way I can describe it. There were plenty ruder ways for me to think about this. Um, we'll set a poach. We'll put a photo up on the show notes so you can see exactly what it looks like. And essentially, what it does, you pop it inside your boot. And it uh, has granules within inside the bag that absorb the moisture. Now, we were keen to find out how this works, and this is what I did. First of all, I went skiing, which was quite fun. I enjoyed that bit. And when I got back, I put one boot, and I felt them to see if they felt damp. I mean, I'm not saying they were really wet, but they were a little bit damp. And I put one in a boot, and I didn't put one in the other boot. Um, I gave it overnight, and then the next day when I got it out, both boots seemed quite dry. Um, so I can't attribute much to the uh, dry shore in that particular test, although I did sniff it 
and it really did smell like it had absorbed quite a lot of my okay, smelly feet good. moisture. So I'm going to say it worked. I wanted, to, I wanted, to, I wanted to take the test a bit further, Ian, just to make sure that it was really working. So I got some old boots and I poured half a pint of water in each one. Um, I then emptied the boot out of the water, and then I put a dry sure thing in one of them, and I left it overnight. When I tested it the next day, I think there was so much water in the dry shore couldn't quite absorb all of it, but it was uh, so much drier than the one that didn't have the dry shore in. I put my other dry shore um, thing, because obviously you get two, one for each boot, into it. And within another 12 hours, that boot that had the half a pint of water was bone dry. The other one was still sopping wet. So it okay. definitely works. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with the lengths that you went to to, uh, to, to test it. And, and it's obviously environmentally friendly because it's not using up any power or um, there are no emissions involved or anything. That's it. It's completely eco. It comes um, in minimal packaging, which I really liked as well. You know, these days you end up with so yeah. much stuff. It just came in a small bag um, and it was ready to go. And you can reuse it for ages and ages. You just dry it out on a radiator, I think is what it says. Uh, they'll probably tell me that was wrong. Um, and you just keep using it again and again. So it's a lot better than using um, a boot dryer that just runs all night. Um, so, yeah, it's really eco-friendly. Very yeah. good. And, and what's, say, the, what's the re- retail price? Um, I believe they retail for twenty nine ninety nine, um, and if you spend more than forty pounds in the shop, you get free postage worldwide. Okay, right. And you can go okay. to dryshore.co. Well, sure. Co. Yeah, I was going to say I'll put a link into the show notes uh, on theskipodcast.com, and if people want to look into it there, they can. Brilliant. Do you want me to send them to you, Ian, so you can have a go? I'm not sure. Will they? Will they smell of your feet? Yeah, they do smell of my feet. No, I don't want them, thanks. Uh, all right, then. <laughs> hey, that was a really good link, Ian. Because now we're going to talk about cheese. Oh, I see. Yeah, I see what you've done I, there. I didn't even write that one down. That was just in my head. All right. So um, Ian was in Le Rosier a few weeks back, and he was talking to a ski instructor who was also a farmer, and he learned a bit about Beaufort cheese. Is that a good enough introduction, Ian? Yeah, I think it is. Let's just go straight to it. Great. So um, I'm here with Julien Ottobon, uh, who is a ski instructor and guide with Evolution 2. But he also has another life, and his other life is as a, uh, a farmer. And he, you're a uh, dairy farmer, right? Yes, I'm a dairy farmer all year round. And we produce milk to to make Beaufort cheese. Okay. Is, uh, how many and how many cows do you have in your? Uh, we've got herd? Uh, eighty dairy cows. Eighty. Okay. And um, did you say it produces uh, produces uh, Beaufort, Beaufort uh, cheese? cheese. Yeah. So to, for for it to be Beaufort cheese, I've had Beaufort before. So I know it's like from this area. Yes. But it has to come from certain place to be able to be called Beaufort. Is from, that right? From this area, from a special herd of cows. Yeah. And they have to to be fed as well. You mean the the, the breed? They have to be a certain the breed. breed. Yeah. Right. Breed from here, and uh, and the way they are fed as well. Okay. With grass and air from from the area. Right. <coughs> so, you, so yours um, are obviously, well, they're here in 
the, you live in Borg Samaris? Yes, next to Borg Samaris. Yeah, and at the moment it, it changes from winter to summer. So at the moment you're in winter operation. Yes. So where are the cows right they now? Are, they are inside, nice and warm. <laughs> and uh, until the end of April, and then they start to come out. And in the summer we go, we go up the mountain to 2,000 to 2,400 meters altitude from June to October. Okay, and do you go up with them? Yes, we have a chalet and we, we stay there. Right, okay. But also me, I don't stay there all the time because yeah. we have to, to make the hay for the next winter okay. to store for, for the winter. And the cows roam around all over the mountain, do no, they? No, no, they are in fence, in fields. They have new place of grass every twice a day after okay. milking. So they can't just go, we follow the grass growing. Yeah. So we go up slowly. And then from September, we start to go down slowly. Uh, so when you say you follow the grass growing, it grows higher yes. the more you get into the middle of summer. Is that how yes, that works? Yes. Right. And does the milk taste different depending which grass they've eaten? Yes, it depends where they are, which side of the mountain they are. It can be different milk and different cheese. Right. Yes. Okay. And, then, and what about milking them then? You have to do that every day? Every day, twice a day. So it's 3.30 in the morning, 3 in the afternoon. 3.30 in the morning? Yeah, early. <laughs> to make before, you have to milk early. Right. We make before every day. Right, and the milk gets collected every collected day as every well. Collected every day, and it's, it's made two hours after the collect. Okay. No more than that. Okay, so, and, it, and it, you sell it to, you don't make it yourself, the uh, cheese? Yeah, we have, a, we have a little co-op in Boxa Maurice, right. owned by the farmer. And that's where the cheese is made. Right, okay. And it, and it, but you can't eat it, although it's made within two hours, you don't eat that cheese straight away, do no, you? You've got to let it... wait for six months. Six months. In cave to mature. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's <clears throat> that's the appropriate amount of time to, to wait. And I yeah. think you told me as well, if you really want a proper uh, Beaufort cheese... You have to be a bit more patient. You have to be a bit more patient, <laughs> but also... Um, it's to do with uh, the shape of the cheese itself. Uh, yes, to, to make sure it's Beaufort, the side of the cheese, it's a wheel yeah. of 40 kilos and the side is concave. Right, so if you don't have a concave side to the cheese, yeah, then you... You got ripped off, it's not Yeah, Beaufort. it's not Beaufort. <laughs> um, and I also found it kind of interesting that you said, that, you know, with the, the cows themselves, they're obviously very... I don't know, intuitive, is that the word? I'm not really too sure, but they're quite good at predicting when it's going to snow. Yes. Is that right? No, that's true. We, when it goes to snow, the, the day before, or a few hours before, they go to it a lot more than usual because they, they know the next day they might not be able to, to eat as yeah. much as they want because of the snow. The only problem with that is that that only works when they're outdoors. So in the yeah, winter... Yeah, when they're inside, no. They know they no. get fed every day the same. So yeah, you can't go into the barn and say, no. you know, is it going to snow tomorrow no, or something like that. we don't know. It could be good if we could know sometimes, yeah. but no, no. Okay, and, and the other thing I found really interesting is that you think that, um, you know, they play the cows grazing plays an important part in in, in avalanche in prevention avalanche, in the stability of the snow on the mountain because they graze the grass with so shorter so the snow sticks better to the ground yeah if it's the grass is too tall with the weight of the snow it falls and it, the avalanche goes very 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 easy yeah so they do a really important job for the winter season yeah cows and sheep as well <coughs> yeah well, that's something you know i think I'd never thought of that. Hopefully, you know that will give people a few, you know, ideas of 
I guess the importance and this is something that's been going on like skiing has been going on in this area we're in La Rosière right yes. now but in this area for 50 60 50 years, years but uh, you know dairy farming has been going on for a lot more centuries <laughs> yes. right that was the people here before they were living just with the farming yeah was very important before. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, I hope the uh, uh, you have a good winter yeah, and get too. lots of good milk. <laughs> and uh, next time I get my Beaufort, I'll make sure that it's got a uh, a concave, uh, concave side, side to it. Uh, thanks very much. Great cheese chat. I really like that, Ian. Good. Well, I mean, I found it fascinating that just to get a little insight into you know, what has happened in the mountains for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and it's still happening now. And, you, you know, when you go on a skiing holiday, these sort of things, you know, pass you by. The closest you kind of get to, you know, realising what's going on is having a, a fondue or a raclette or something like that. Um, and then, you know, you've got a ski instructor there who's getting up every morning to uh, to milk his cows before he teaches people on the mountain. I, do, I just found it fascinating. And the cheese is very tasty. Yeah, he must. Um, he was. A, he's a proper mountain man, isn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although you know, he he only did this kind of latterly. He wasn't brought up on a on a farm. He you know he's done it as a business uh, decision. Oh right. Um, but yeah, he's a he, for sure. He's a proper mountain man. Anyone who kind of lives up, he doesn't spend all summer up on the uh, mountains. But when they go up onto the mountains and they move the uh, the herd around from one patch of uh, pasture to another. Um, you know, he's he's living up there, and you know, as you mentioned, like wolves can be an issue. Um, less so for you know for cattle, but you know they do come across them. Um, and what and one thing I found fascinating there is you know the the concept that grazing uh, animals reduce avalanche risk. Um, so they put them in the in the like an avalanche barrier, right? <laughs> No, uh, I did no. <laughs> The idea that, you know, grazing the grass makes the grass shorter and if the grass is longer, the snow is more likely to slide off the top of it. Um, so, so that would be the argument there. And I also like the fact that the cows eat loads of food before the snow comes. So those Austrian cows right now must be stuffing themselves. <laughs> A lot of food being eaten. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yes, of course. I'm remembering what you're saying there. They know when it's due to snow. That's actually when, and when they're outside in summer because... They can sense when the snow is going to come and it's going to cover up the grass so they won't be able to eat the grass the next day. So they're eating a lot more in advance. You know, so uh, you could use them to try and predict it for winter, but you'd have to make them go outside, which would be a bit cruel. I think you missed an opportunity, Ian, to ask him to remove the bells from around their necks. <laughs> I did say, can you, uh, can you identify them all from the bells? But he said the bells is mainly for when uh, you know, they're out in the summer and the weather's really bad, the fog has come in, etc. and you need to know where the hell they are. You've got to track them down from the bells. That's what they're for. Brilliant. I did wonder. Um, Ian, I'm going to go one up on you next week. I've got an interview with a monoskier championship winner who also makes dairy triangles. So um, look forward to that. No, I'm not really. But, but up the road from me, there is, um, they make um, Reblachon here. But also, um, the other week we went up uh, and there is a, a goat farmer got a shed and he makes, literally milks them and makes them there. And we bought some of the goat's cheese. It was cool. delicious. Maybe I'll speak to him, find out about the same thing that he does. Um, let's talk about Team GB, Ian. Oh, yeah. 
we spoke about it earlier on um, in the last episode, Ian. I suggested that Dave Riding was going to be on the podium. You, Ian Martin, dismissed me, saying the top ten was the best he could hope for. <laughs> then, then fourth in Italy, second in Oslo. Um, I think Dave Riding is probably appreciates my appraisal of his skills more than yours. Yeah, I don't think that's what I said. I think I said that he could get on the podium on any occasion. But I, I, across the season, he'd probably be top ten. But I'm, I'm willing to, uh, to you know, give you the points there. Hey, look, he's done really well. There was well. only only a way we could check in what what you said. There was only a recorded document of it. Exactly. Well, we can listen back to that um, if we want to. But uh, yeah, you know, we we've covered it already. Really, you know, he's he's done extremely well. It's a brilliant um, promotion for Team GB. I'm sure it will help. Um, you know, we already had, we interviewed Charlotte Banks in episode 25, who came over from the French team. And since then, she has had her first podium in a Ski World Cup event uh, at Snowboard Cross for Team GB, um, which, is, which is excellent news. I also noticed that um, there was a really good interview in The Times on the 5th of January. I'll, I'll put a link to it, but um, I think they have a paywall, which might make it uh, difficult to view. But we talked about... Um, Women's ski jump. Uh, now, women's ski jump's only five years old, and we wondered who this other athlete they're going to bring in is. And um, I, there's a name in here, Mani Cooper, a 15-year-old jumping prodigy, is being back from Britain while living in Austria. And I think that's probably the person they're talking about. Uh, at 15, I imagine, she's too young for the Olympics. Is there, a, is there a minimum age to be in the Olympics? Well, obviously, the next Olympics aren't for another three years, so she'll be old enough by then. And, uh, you know, the all-women ski jumper event, uh, you know, is is not very uh, old anyway. So I think she's the one they're talking about. Maybe she's Austrian and we've... we've, we've nav- but we still don't I will, know. I no one's said it. Excuse me? I'm going to find out more about her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yep, BMGB um, doing well, recruiting more people, looking positive. It was good to see Dave um, riding on the front cover of the Times as well, the actual print edition. That yep. was nice. And proven that you don't have to look cool to be really good at skiing, as some people seem to think that there's a there's a clear correlation, but it's not. Right. And um, good news for Katie Omerod. Um, she's back on the snow after injury um, at South Korea um, at the Olympics back uh, last year. So she has back on the snow. It was just a snow dome, but it's good that she's back because she was a big medal hopeful for us and. Um, she's got a lot of fist points from last year in big air and stuff so hopefully she'll be back um, and competing at a high level soon great I, I missed that and I'm delighted to hear it um, right last thing before we go in we've got an interview with um, some guys from the Chill Factor from DSUK let's listen to that now so I am in the Chill Factory in Manchester. I am joined by John Lawson. Um, he is um, the manager for the DSUK Manchester area and also joined by Naomi um, Kletz, who is a DSUK instructor. She's nodding. I've got it right. Brilliant. Um, now I've just uh, thrown out an acronym, DSUK. Tell me, what does it mean and what do you do? Um, so it stands for Disability Snow Sports UK um, and we run adaptive lessons for skiers of all abilities. Um, yeah. I guess the UK signifies that we operate throughout 
England and Scotland. Um, we've got five indoor ski centres. We also operate on Kangol in the winter, and we take trips abroad to Europe and the USA. So perhaps we should be DSUK the world rather than DSUK. DS World WW. We've rebranded you. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm a brand consultant. Um, let's talk about you guys first of all. So you are the manager. How did you get to that, um, and what do you do? Well, I had a serious back injury in 2008, and I used skiing as part of my rehabilitation to adjust to a slightly new... Um, Were you a skier before that? I was a skier before. I didn't have my injury skiing, um, but I had to learn to ski again, ride a bike again, to a certain extent, run and walk again. And I very much uh, valued the contribution and was able to see the, the, the value of the contribution that skiing made to my rehabilitation, physically, but also emotionally. If you are a skier or snowboarder, you know the psychological value of skiing or snowboarding in the mountains, but also in, indoors. It does something for the for the spirit, for the soul. So I really valued that. Uh, subsequently decided to become a ski instructor and stumbled across adaptive snow sports, adaptive skiing and snowboarding as a discipline. Took my qualifications, found it incredibly rewarding environment to work in. Um, and ended up two years ago working here full time. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm going to say, why I was sat in the dark, you, um, you've gone through the Bayesi system. Yeah. And so, what point did you get to um, within the, the normal? Is that the right word? The, the standard system before you decided that you know you wanted to branch out and go into um, adaptive skiing. Uh, well, I actually did it the non-orthodox way. Um, I went straight into the adaptive route um, and then did the alpine as an extra uh, to help with my adaptive because uh, I always wanted to do adaptive more than alpine uh, and it has it has helped with my stand-up lessons but the adaptive route's the one that I want to stick in rather than branch out to the alpine. What made you choose um, uh, the adaptive? Uh, so my brother learned to ski with the DSUK quite a number of years ago so I've known about the charity for a long time um, and I used to be an outdoor activity instructor in Shropshire and I enjoyed working with the kids who had additional needs much more, found it very rewarding. So we looked at whether I can combine something like coaching, uh, additional needs and sport and found the Bayesi course and that's where I am now. Excellent stuff. Well that's quite unusual, there are a number of people like Naomi who regard adaptive teaching as their principal discipline. Um, but more people come to it the other way, as your question implied. And one of the things we have to make sure of, all of us, is that our alpine or snowboarding skills, technical skills and teaching skills, improve at the same rate as our adaptive skills do, because the name is well chosen. It's adaptive snow sports. It's not making this stuff up. When we're working with clients who have a disability that means they need to learn in a different way, to ski with different equipment, to um, adapt the teaching techniques, the techniques of skiing and snowboarding, the environment in which they uh, they choose to take part, then we're adapting a whole you know, well thought through scheme of how skis and, snow, and, and snowboards work and how best to teach them. So we do have to bully Naomi into pursuing her, uh, her alpine qualifications and training just as much as the adaptive. What level are you qualified to now? Uh, so far Alpine level 1, adaptive level 1, but I'm going for my adaptive level 2 in December. Now you've mentioned your clients quite a lot and I assume there is a huge wide variety of people that come to you. 
Um, where do they come from? How do they find you? And who are you teaching? Hi. Such a big question. They're just looking at each other, going, oh, "I don't know where to start." With that. How they find us um, is is principally word of mouth, or the you know the, the modern equivalent through through social media. Um, there is nothing um, so powerful as seeing somebody who you regard as being similar to you, physically, emotionally, in age, gender, race, whatever it is. Seeing them do something, I think, yeah, I can have a go at that. So a big part of our job is to put ourselves in that, those shop windows and saying, look. Here's, here's somebody having a great time, here's somebody learning a new set of skills, um, and, and hopefully uh, people will see a kindred, a kindred spirit and come, come and join us. Uh, we do recruit, we do out to recruit through schools and, and, and clubs and other charities and things, which is a great part of our work, um, but the, 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 the power of experience, of testimony, of, of the visual image of seeing somebody like me going skiing and snowboarding is our, is our principal recruiting tool. Um, in terms of who skis with us, we like to say that there's nobody who can't ski or snowboard. There's a practical weight limit to most sit skis, so if you're wanting to sit ski and you weigh significantly above 16, 16 and a half stone, that becomes physically very difficult. But other than that, we ski with guys who have portable ventilators. Um, perhaps the instructor carries them whilst they're sit skiing. We ski with guys who've got a totally invisible disability that you wouldn't know. Uh, mental illness, a learning disability, anxiety, something that is um, without some um, of the specialist input that we, can put, that we can bring might be a real inhibitor to somebody going skiing. Um, and it's their, it's their disability, it's their world and our job is to help them to, to overcome it so the, the only real limit is if you are too heavy for a sit-ski and you need to sit-ski then it's an incentive to lose weight Excellent stuff, well thank you very much for taking time to tell me about um, what you now, do Now um, I've like... had an email from them since um, we recorded that and they wanted to me just to read out a few things um, they're planning a four day taster lesson for 2019 at each indoor centre um, including the chill factory and they'll give a chance for skiers and snowboarders curious to have a go the cost will be £10 redeemable on the first proper lesson booked after that taster so do keep an eye on their website if you are in, um, if you want to go along and try that out and they've got some fundraising opportunities um, who might want to do that they're doing runs, swims and things like that in the aid of DSUK um, if you go to disabilitysnowsports.com UK dots. Um, you can find out more about that. Cool. I will we'll drop that in the show notes as well. That sounds really, uh, really interesting. And Naomi, who was um, featured in that, she and her mum are cycling a hundred miles overnight around Liverpool and the Wirral. I mean, that's pretty dangerous in itself, isn't it? Um, wow. and if you want to support them, if you want to support them, you can go to uh, their Just Giving page and all that money goes towards DSUK as well. And um, if you want to find out more, go to disabilitysnowsports.org.uk for any more information. Great. Right, it says on my show notes, Ian, um, teaser, what's coming up in episode 29? What is coming up? Uh, well, we don't even have a date for episode 29 yet, but um, I'm actually going out to the Alps myself as well next week so i'll be in course cheval and chamonix and i'll uh, be looking to you know so we'll, we'll see we'll see what's uh, interesting there but um yeah i'll come up i might i'm i'm hoping to try that uh, step into the void thing that they have at the agui de midi do you know what i'm talking about i think so yes yeah it's like a glass box that you can step into and if you've got the the kind of courage to do so and there's a three kilometer drop below you so We'll see if we can if we can be find that. There's also a possibility 
that I'll be interviewing um, Eddie Edwards next week. So uh, that more famously known as Eddie the Eagle. So I will be asking him about Mamie Cooper if that comes up. Wow, that's exciting. And like I said, I'll do a report um, about what it's like to ski in the Cluser and we'll have those who can find the best budget ski resort. Ah, and also, can I just remind people that if they'd like some ski podcast stickers, uh, because um, Michael, who uh, did that, that review, he uh, asked some stickers and I sent them out to him. Just uh, yeah, contact us uh, through all the normal ways. And... Um, if you want to take a photo of your sticker on Plas out in resort, um, then you know we'd love to see those as well because I, I, I think uh, Jim, you were, you were sent one, weren't you? A photo of uh, one of our stickers. I was by someone from Skipedia. I don't know who that might be, but it was a very good, very good sticker spot. Well done, Ian. Yeah, yeah. Watch out for it in Valdez there at the uh, at the top of the Ladai lift if you happen to be there. Uh, I've not been skiing on my own. Every time I get my stickers out, my child steals it off at me and sticks it on his own helmet. So um, <laughs> I will try harder. Cool. All right. Well, enjoy um, your skiing in La Clusa and your day off without the kids. And uh, yeah, look you too. To... You, en- you enjoy your ski trip. I hope there's no drone activity. Well, that's it all from the podcast. Thank you, Ian. Thank you all for listening. We will catch you next time. Don't forget to contact the show at the ski podcast on twitter email us uh, or go to our website where you can catch all our past episodes and that's the ski podcast.com thanks for listening and catch you soon You have been listening to the Ski Podcast with Jim Duncombe and Ian Martin. We are sponsored by the Chill Factory, the Northwest Premier Ski and Snowboard Centre. And don't forget, we've got a discount code, SkiPod10. The music's by FreeFX. Jim does the editing. Ian looks after the website. And we share the rest of the responsibilities. Thanks for listening.